Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Today I'm bringing you another conversation from my trip out to the Bay Area pre-pandemic. This one is about the power of energy storage. And stick around after the interview to hear about Jayu's experience volunteering at the polls. The electricity grid that powers our homes is a big, complex system responsible for everything from generating electricity to transmitting it over long distances to get to us. At any moment, supply and demand for electricity must perfectly align an immense technological and engineering challenge. But human behavior complicates the problem even further. Our demand for electricity rises and falls over minutes, days, weeks, and even seasons, sometimes predictably, sometimes unpredictably. And it's expensive, inefficient, and often heavily polluting to respond to these shifts by repeatedly turning entire power plants on and off. But with energy storage, the grid can be a lot more flexible without all the pollution and waste. By keeping some energy on standby, like in the form of batteries, we can respond more quickly when supply and demand don't match. And energy storage will be even more valuable as we transition to using more renewable energy. After all, we do watch TV when it's not windy out, and we turn the lights on after the sun goes down. To learn more about how this works, I spoke to Dr. Elena Krieger, Director of Research at PSE Healthy Energy. She's an expert on energy storage, and her research focuses on how we can more quickly transition to renewable energy and do so in a way that is healthy and equitable. We start our conversation with a bit of an energy storage 101, talking about the different types of energy storage and what advantages one kind may have over the other. Then Elena shares how energy storage creates a more equitable system and how the solar panels on your roof, known as distributed solar, has the potential to deliver enormous benefits, especially to underserved communities. But in order to get there, we need policy to create financial incentives. For a clean, equitable electricity grid, I think it'll be worth it. Elena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk a little bit about energy storage. I mean, we now have the ability to store energy from wind and solar and other renewables. How exactly is it stored? What's actually kind of fascinating is that more than 90% of the energy storage currently on the grid is in the form of pumped hydro. So what we literally do is pump water up a hill into a reservoir, leave it there until we need it, and then run it back down again through a turbine. Super simple. Um, It's a technology we've had for a really long time. One of the other most common forms of energy storage on the grid is actually thermal storage. So in that case, what we do is we can make things like ice overnight and use that for cooling during the next day. So instead of storing energy in a battery or something like that, which is what we automatically think of when we think of energy storage, you're actually storing it in the form of something hot or something cold. And you can use that for heating or cooling purposes. Yeah, I was imagining something 
that seemed a lot more technologically advanced. Exactly. So the thing is, those are the types of technologies that have been on the grid for decades. These are things that we know how to do. What we've seen a huge growth in in the last couple of years are batteries, things like different kinds of lithium-ion batteries, for example, where you store energy in what is effectively an electrochemical reaction. And then you reverse that reaction in order to supply electricity to the grid when you need it. But these are the kinds of batteries pretty similar to what you have in your laptop or your cell phone. And those have been growing relatively explosively in the last couple of years. But in their total scale, they're still not anywhere close to what we have in the form of pumped hydro. The advantage of something like batteries is we can put them almost anywhere, whereas pumped hydro is reliant on having, let's say, a mountain. (laughs) Or maybe in some cases there's some novel approaches that can use things like mine shafts, but they're still limited in terms of where you can actually put that technology, and dams also have environmental impacts. So what are we using energy storage for? I'm assuming it's when we are demand is higher than the supply that we have, but what else? Uh, So that is certainly one of the major applications. So let's say you have a surplus of solar energy in the middle of the day, too much wind energy generation at night. You can store that electricity and use that when demand is high, let's say in the early evening when everyone goes home and turns on their light bulbs in their houses. However, Storage can actually be used for a whole bunch of different things on the grid. So you can put it on, let's say, your distribution and transmission lines when you might have otherwise needed to upgrade them. And you can defer your grid upgrades by putting storage at the end of those lines. You can use it to provide what's called power quality on the grid, so to stabilize fluctuations in your voltage or in frequency to make sure that you have consistent power. You can use energy storage for backup. So let's say that there's a grid outage of some kind. Distributed storage, particularly at people's houses, at medical clinics, can provide backup power in the case of an emergency. But energy storage is actually the most competitive from an economic standpoint when you use it for all of those things. So this is what batteries can do that the other storage methods Can't. can't. Which something like pumped hydro can't. So pumped hydro can help balance out your loads, but is not going to be able to provide backup to a medical clinic if there's an outage or to a nursing facility. So now that we have better and better battery storage, Mm -hmm. that's really helping us get to renewable energy future. Yeah, so batteries are going to play a critical role as we move forward in integrating wind, solar, and other variable and intermittent renewable energy sources. What they do is they also enhance the grid flexibility. The way that our grid is structured right now is that we typically have an electric supply, your power plant, an electric demand, your household, you flip on a switch or whatever, and when you turn on your switch, that power plant effectively has to go up a little bit in order to supply that electricity. As we start to have variable and non-dispatchable sources of electricity on the grid, like wind and solar, it is very useful to have a flexible load on the other end. So that means that we can do things like shift around when you run your dishwasher 
And that means that we can do things like store energy and help create this flexible demand on the opposite end uh, to match that variable generation. So if I have solar panels on my house, can I store my own surplus energy? You certainly can if you have a battery. What kind of battery do I need? You need a rechargeable battery. A rechargeable Um, battery. Typically, the batteries that we're seeing installed in households right now are different kinds of lithium-ion batteries. Lithium-ion batteries are not all one thing. You're going to get a slightly different set of materials in a battery that's in your computer as opposed to one that is going to be used in a car or at your house for backup based on how it's going to be operated. Are you discharging at 100%? How long does it need to last? How frequently is it used? And it will be calibrated so that it lasts longer in a given use condition. So currently, if I hook up my solar panels, my excess energy is going back into the grid Mm -hmm. But I could actually store that in a battery if I had You could actually store it in a battery. You Are wouldn't... people doing that? So you can, but from a broad grid standpoint, it's not necessarily that valuable because the grid is sort of acting as your battery and balancing it out. It's useful to have that storage to manage your bills and to reduce your demand charges and to provide backup. But if there is excess electricity of some other kind on the grid at any moment, or it can be used directly, that's more efficient because there's always efficiency losses associated with energy storage. When you charge it and then discharge it, you're going to lose a little bit of that energy. And so if there's any way that you can match your generation and your use at the same time, that is going to be more efficient overall than if you store it. And so storage comes in when you can't match it anymore. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, You can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and on your social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So I want to talk a little bit about a study that you published last year on distributed solar and environmental justice. Tell me a little bit about that. What is distributed solar? So distributed solar is solar that is sited at people's homes, at residences, at commercial facilities. Basically, it's sort of distributed throughout the community as opposed to located in a giant utility-scale solar project. It is typically located behind your electric meter, which means that whatever solar is generated on your rooftop, if you use that directly in your house, the grid never sees it and the utility never knows it happens. Your excess is often then supplied back to the grid through a process called net metering. So in California, we have a set of policies which dedicate 
clean energy funding towards what we designate as disadvantaged communities. So these are communities that have a cumulative burden of numerous environmental health and socioeconomic stressors. California has created a score through a tool called CalEnviroScreen, which integrates environmental exposures like air pollution and traffic proximity and Superfund sites with socioeconomic indicators such as income levels and educational attainment and health indicators like asthma rates and ranks every census tract in California against the others on an integrated index that um, pulls together all of these different metrics. And the 25% of communities that rank as the most overburdened or potentially vulnerable due to these stressors on this index are considered disadvantaged. And we have funding from our cap and trade funds, which is specifically set aside for clean energy investments in these communities. So we were curious to see how much solar actually is in disadvantaged communities in California. Is this changing? And can we set a baseline as these investments continue moving forward? And so what we did is we looked at rooftop solar adoption in households across the state of California on a census tract basis and looked at these CalEnviroScreen scores, these environmental justice scores, uh, both the cumulative score and individual indicators within each score to see what solar adoption rates look like and whether specific characteristics seen more correlated or less correlated with solar adoption. What we found was that what California designates as the most disadvantaged communities have an eighth of the solar adoption rate as the least disadvantaged communities. And so that means that you have a lack of access to clean energy among your most disadvantaged communities. We looked at specific indicators in CalEnviroScreen screen as well, and we saw things like communities that had higher rates of linguistic isolation, had higher housing burdens, and lower median income levels, and lower educational attainment levels were also highly correlated with lack of access to solar. So what are some of the solutions to even out the playing field? Yeah, so... Uh, I think that there's a whole suite of potential approaches. Some of them will have to do with financing and making sure that finance is available even to those with low credit or with low income levels. Some of it has to do with trying to overcome the split incentive problem for renters and landlords. So unfortunately what happens right now is you often have a landlord who owns the building and has control over whether or not you have solar on the rooftop, and you have renters who are playing the electric bill. So how do you incentivize the landlord to put in solar to help reduce the bills for their renters? Some of that could be solved with things like community solar, so that people could sub subscribe to local community solar installations instead. Some, I think, is simply, as we said, education and outreach and trying to reach people from different communities and building that trust. Some is dedicated funding. So we have funding going towards disadvantaged communities. We have funding for low-income customers in single-family and multifamily homes. 
dedicated funding. And so some of it is increasing those levels, but we also have some challenges. So there's set-aside funding right now for low-income customers to have access to energy storage, and almost none of that funding is being used. And so we have to figure out why. (laughs) Um, Is this a lack of providers coming in? Is this a lack of understanding of what storage is and what it does? We have to figure out why that's not being used. So one thing that I found interesting when you were talking is that language is a barrier in some way. So solar can save money on your bills, for example. And there are, you can either buy your solar panels outright, or you can often have companies who will lease them to you and ensure that your bill is lower by a fixed amount every month. But understanding that that's possible and what those benefits are all going to be require to some extent that you have you know materials and understanding and trust Uh, Well, you know, that's a really good point, because when I think about it, I get confused about how I can get solar panels on my house. And, and, you know, I'm a native English speaker, so Mm -hmm. it's complex. If somebody says that we can come in and we will lease this to you for 20 years and you'll own it at the end of it, like that ends up being complicated and we're going to save you $10 per bill or $20 per bill or whatever it happens to be. That is something that is complicated, <laughs> right. right? I think your average your average person probably doesn't really understand how that works anyway. You're hooked up to net metering, as we said, and so how do you explain that your solar is generated on the top of your house? You pump it into the grid when you're not using it. You pull from the grid, and that they subtract one from the other and charge you for the difference. I have trouble explaining that in English. And then, of course, I think as you're working with people across languages and across cultures, there certainly are trust issues. Um, And there have been cases, certainly in California and others, of companies taking advantage of people who don't fully understand their bills. What are the new technologies on the horizon that you're really excited about? I'm excited about some technologies and some sort of shifts in how we operate the electric grid as a whole. So... Right now, we are seeing a lot of lithium-ion batteries come onto the grid. They matured in laptops and electric vehicles, and they commercialize quickly. Prices have plummeted. They dropped by, I think, a factor of 90% over the course of 9 or 10 years. Like, it's been crazy. And so we're seeing lithium-ion batteries everywhere on the grid. However, as we move forward, we're going to need more long-duration storage, batteries that are cost-effective to operate over a longer period of time, over a day, over multiple days. So things like flow batteries, where all of the battery materials are made out of liquids instead of out of solids. These technically exist, but they haven't really been manufactured at scale, so they're not cost-competitive yet. The other thing that is sort of cool to watch in general is grid modernization as a whole. The standard grid has, you know, your electric supply on one end and your electric demand on another. And what we're trying to do is overhaul the grid entirely so that everything is flexible and responsive, so that when you use your electricity is responsive to when you have change in your supply of electricity. And so that's going to require a lot of smart technology. That means responsive electric water heaters in your house. That means electric vehicles. That means that your energy storage systems and everything else, they all have to be optimized across all of these different technology types, and they all have to communicate with one each other. So it's this massive big data problem. 
that you have to solve and we're starting to test out and try to figure out how to solve. It's complicated. You have to change all of your electricity markets. You have certain electric markets right now that will compensate a power plant to come on. And what you want them to be able to do is compensate 100 energy storage systems, five cars, and six electric water heaters to come on and do the same thing. So creating that aggregated system that can all play within the existing network is going to be a hard problem, but it's a fascinating one that we're trying to sort out as we go. I love the fact that you're so excited about this. Also, I'm a that's, nerd. What's gonna, that's what's going to make it possible. There's people that are excited about this and see the possibilities. Well, so, you know, I think what is also cool and what's so crazy is how fast the prices have been dropping for solar, for wind, for offshore wind, for energy storage. So there's all these technologies that we thought were going to be mature in like 2030 or 2040, and they're competitive now. So we are at the point where energy storage is becoming cost competitive in certain places with power plants. So we're starting to see a number of cases where instead of what are typically called peaker power plants, these power plants that come on and operate on the grid to meet peak demand, hot summer days when everyone turns on their air conditioning, they use maybe 5% of the time, usually zero to 10% ish. We are now starting to see energy storage step in and fill that role. So in California, we have power plants that are being built, but they're not power plants, they're batteries. We're having 100 megawatt batteries being built to take the place of what used to be gas-fired power plants. They're being built in California, even actually in Florida. Florida Power & Light is building a 400 megawatt energy storage system. That's huge. It's going to be the biggest in the country, I think. In terms of physically, like how big is it? The utility scale energy storage, so these big systems, will often sit on like the footprint of a power plant. Uh, You can also meet that same demand with a bunch of distributed systems. So you can aggregate energy storage at houses and commercial and industrial sites across the city and aggregate all of those to also... Uh, Which is pretty cool. I mean, that's that's, um, that's a lot more flexible than having to have everything in one spot. It makes it more flexible, and it means that you can also do other things with that energy storage, like provide backup in the case of emergencies. So in California, we have had rolling blackouts, public safety power shutoffs, when there are wildfire conditions across California, because... Transmission lines, electric transmission lines, have been responsible for some of the largest and deadliest fires in California in the last couple of years. So the utility, in response, has been shutting down the transmission lines whenever we have hot, dry conditions with high winds. The result is that we've had communities that have been left without electricity for days and days. And this is particularly a problem for folks like medical baseline customers, people who rely on electricity for oxygen, for other kinds of, you know, life-supporting machines, as well as just, let's say, the elderly who are like more susceptible to heat stroke and might need access to things like air conditioning. So distributed energy storage has the potential to provide backup 
when we have outages, whether it's a public safety power shutoff or an actual wildfire or an earthquake or some other kind of emergency, that energy storage can provide backup, particularly for those most vulnerable populations. And then simultaneously, you can add up all those batteries and provide grid services. Um, You can also put batteries at, let's say, community centers or schools or cooling centers so that people have somewhere to go. Are there examples of this happening already? Because I think the power is in people seeing these possibilities in action. Yes, actually. um, We are starting to see energy storage and solar as part of microgrids that can do what we call island from the grid. They can separate from the grid and operate on their own when the grid goes down. So we frequently see these actually at military facilities. One, they have the funding, and two, they understand the importance of resilience in the case of disasters and need to make sure they have access to electricity. But we're also starting to see this at certain kinds of critical facilities. There is a tribe in Northern California, for example, that built its own microgrid a number of years ago, I believe. That was the only place that had electricity during the public safety power shutoffs this fall. And everyone from all the surrounding communities came to that tribe because they still had power for you know their local store and so on. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's super I'm glad exciting. we're talking about this yeah. because now people listening to the podcast will know that this is happening. It's happening everywhere from schools in New Jersey that are putting in solar and storage systems to critical facilities in California. So you can do this at fire departments or medical clinics, anywhere that you think that people um, might be able to go and gather. Mm-hmm. Well, Elena, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's been really fun talking to you. Thanks for having me. And now it's time to hear about Jayu's adventure, volunteering at the polls. Hey, Jayu, how's it going? Are you excited about participating in your first presidential election? Yeah, yeah, I am. Cool. Hey, so I heard that you um, took a day off last week to volunteer at the polls. I've been wanting to do that for a really long time. So what did you actually do? Yeah, so I was a poll worker at the Massachusetts State Primary, and I did a lot of things throughout the day, you know, checking people in. Some people were at the door as a greeter because we had four precincts sharing one location, so the greeters were able to help them find where their precinct was. For a while, I was also working checkout duty, making sure their ballot ends up in the right spot, helping them get it into the machine and handing them their I Voted sticker, which was my favorite part. They always love the stickers. Was it really crowded? It wasn't, actually. It was pretty slow, I think, because of the mail-in ballots Uh that everyone was able to submit. So how did you find out about opportunities for volunteering? So I actually got a flyer in the mail because I recently updated my registration. So when they sent me a letter saying, we've updated your registration, they also included a flyer saying, and we need poll workers. Here's how you can do it. And they provided a link, and I just followed that. But I think if anyone else wanted to do this, they could really just Google poll worker followed by their city name. Or I really like Power the Polls, which is a great nonprofit that recruits poll workers. You can find them at powerthepolls.org. So Jayu, any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, you know, it's really easy to get all rah-rah about voting. But, you know, unfortunately, the truth is there's lots of institutional barriers working against us, which I just feel isn't right and... You know, now there's a public health crisis that's forcing voters to decide between their health and exercising their right to vote. And I really 
just feel that this country can and should do better. It shouldn't be a test of perseverance, whether or not we vote. Exactly. That's all the more reason for people to get out in November and vote and make the world a better place. Agreed. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. <laughs> Thanks. This has been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Elena Krieger. And thanks to Jiayu Liang for sharing her experience volunteering at the polls. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Thanks, and stay safe. See you next time. <laughs>